I know Dr. Freymeyer will say, never apologize when you start a sermon, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Since a number of you I see are from my CD605 class, and you heard me test this out, this sermon, a little bit on you earlier, actually a week and a half ago. So you can help me if I get off track, just wave me back home, okay? <laughs> Listen to this email that I received last week regarding a 9-11 Facebook post. Facebook posts are not a good way to prepare for sermons, but this one might help. I disagree with the point that the mother is trying to tell her children that love conquers all. That's like telling them that Santa is real. That's just not true. Yes, we should love everyone, even if they hate us, but we could have loved the, the, the people that killed all those innocent people on 9-11, and we could love all the people who are still killing lots of people because of their religion, and it wouldn't have stopped them. Their hearts are black, and only Jesus can change them. That being said, everyone hates war, but sometimes that's the only way to stop people. Even God fought wars in biblical times, not because he wanted to, but because it was his last resort. Poor God. That's my comment. <laughs> we are a country who's changed laws in the Constitution so that everyone's lifestyle is accepted when in God's eyes it's sin. I feel so bad for my grandkids who have to grow up in a country where if you stand up for the right thing, you're going to be called a racist. Like our preacher says, our country's going down the toilet, but we should rejoice because it's just, it just means we are one day closer to the end of the world. By the way, how are you doing? Your grandparents are wonderful. <laughs> why such a pathetic excuse for following Jesus? Or why are Christians known mostly for what they oppose than for the positive message of good news, particularly in topics like the environment, which we were told to take care of in the first book of the Bible? Immigration issues, the gun debate, the LGBT community. Don't blame the media. It's not their fault our message is so negative. It's because so many of us are just nasty people, and they report it. Why is it that the cars I most fear on the road are the SUVs with the big Christian fish on their butts? And I speak as a biker who knows what I'm talking about. By the way, let me, let me just put in a parenthesis here. If you have a, one of those Christian fish on the back of your car, please take it off. Unless you're going to make your car, as Dr. Bob Tuttle used to say, an instrument of grace. If you're going to drive like most people who have them on, please don't let people know you're Christians. Or at least you profess to be one. But the real issue is I think we've substituted Jesus for a mishmash of Christendom, consumerism, and individualistic nationalism. Where we can go around and sing the national anthem, if we know Amazing Grace, we can slap a bumper sticker on our car that says, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. In other words, I prayed a little prayer, jumped over a magic faith line, and now get out of my way. Plain and simple, we're just not making disciples of Jesus. Yet Jesus says that making disciples is priority one. How's that for a positive start to a sermon? <laughs> now that I have your attention, I want to blow away your assumptions about what discipleship is and what I think it's not. So imagine with me, let's take Jesus seriously believing that what he taught and commanded 2,000 years ago would actually work in our day and age. Imagine a world where the hungry are fed, the thirsty are given drink, the immigrants are protected, the naked are clothed, the sick are nursed to health, the prisoner is visited and restored. Imagine a world filled with peacemakers where forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration are the rule. Yes, I'm talking about disciples of Jesus, who are making disciples. But I'm not talking about 
some simple Christian education where we fill people's heads with some Bible facts. And dare I say, as a former Christian, well, I've been a Christian educator most of my life. I no longer believe in Christian education. Hear that. I used to have Bible quizzers, and some of you may come from denominations where you had Bible quizzing in your teen program. They were the worst teens in my youth ministry. I tried to shut it down a couple of times in one church and was almost fired over it because the parents got so up in arms that we had to keep the Bible quizzing program. But I found the Bible quizzers had great knowledge of the Bible. They could quote entire books of the Bible word for word. They could win every quiz, but they would fight in the quizzes with other people because they thought they should have won when they didn't. They were almost impossible to get along with in my, my youth group because they sucked most of our dollars away for the trips that they went on but didn't know how to live like Jesus because they never knew how to apply it. They never became disciples. They had lots of head knowledge. They'd been educated in the scripture, but they never put it into their own lives. So I think we need to flush the notion out of our brains that we're talking about Christian education. It's not a matter, as I've heard recently in a sermon at another place, it's not a matter of just managing sin better. We must get beyond our heads, to our heart, to our hands, and to our feet. In fact, I think we're talking, as, as some authors that I've been even using in my class have talked about, that it's about living out God's kingdom in a post-Christendom world. What does it mean to live in the post-Christendom world? We are to be about serving postmodern people, pointing them to a hope-filled and life-changed life. And in a world, in fact, Dr. Primer, you and I are beyond this age-wise, but in a world where there's postmodern people, uh, we're a little too old to be postmodern, but in a postmodern world, world where everyone's truth is their truth and it's good for them, we have to get beyond that. We have to move beyond that because if postmoderns don't see a more inviting truth than the truth that they think is their truth and it's fine for them, there's no reason for them to listen to us as we proclaim our faith. Our truth has to be more vital and inviting for them if, it, if they're going to pay attention. And I really want to draw your, your attention to Dr. Mulholland's definition, and some of you know his definition from Invitation to a Journey. Um, he calls it spiritual formation, but we're, some of you have used his book in class, I'm sure, here. Definition, the process, yeah, it's on the screen, of being conformed into the image of Jesus for the sake of others. It's not something that stops because it's a continual process. It's being shaped, molded, formed into something, what? The image of Jesus. It's like a big stamp. We're being formed into the image of Jesus as a lifelong process. But it's never about ourselves. It's never the selfish individualism that we see so often in our country. It's for the sake of other people. Question for you. From all the words you heard read from Scripture, when did the disciples get saved? Maybe never. Just think about that. I don't see Jesus getting down on his knees or standing beside the boat and drawing out, uh, well, in my days it was a... Uh, um, Sawdust trail, we used to talk about in, in, I used to hear pastors when I was a little kid talking about, you had to walk the sawdust trail. 
Jesus didn't set up a sand trail to the boat and say, okay, I'm going to sing 13 verses of just as I am, and I want you to come kneel by the boat. I don't ever see him passing out a comment card or a, a, a commitment card. In each account, Matthew through John, what do we see? What did we just hear? He said, follow me, and you'll learn to fish in a new way. In other words, follow me, and I'll challenge your sandals off. You'll be surprised what happens if you just follow me. And what do these people do, this vagabond of people? They're immediately called disciples. We don't know if they've made a commitment or not. They wander all over the place, but they, get, they start casting out demons. He sends them out in ministry before they're trained to do it. They'd never been to seminary, and they knew how to cast, well, they didn't know how, but Jesus says, go do it. Go start living in ministry. And I think that gets closer to what we're talking about when we're talking about discipleship. Some of you know the name Alan and Deb, Alan, names Alan and Deb Hirsch, and they were actually here several years ago and taught us from their book, Untamed. They talk about the difference between fences and wells in Australia. Their ranches are too big to have fences. They can't afford the fences. Too often we have built barriers around our ministries. Our churches are places where, for many generations, discipleship starts after a person commits themselves to Jesus. I heard my bishop, one of my bishops at the last general conference, I almost, never mind, I won't tell you what I almost did. I almost got really, really sick listening to him talk about the fact that it's about helping people learn to look like us, smell like us, taste like us, and then they can belong. We miss the point. Alan and Deb Hirsch talk about instead, in fact, show the next slide if you will, Logan. Talk about wells. In Australia, they don't put up fences. They dig wells and the cattle and the sheep don't go very far away. They keep coming back to the water. Discipleship is more like drilling a well and saying, let me help point you to the water. When does a person, if you're on this spiral, when do they make that official commitment to Jesus? When do they jump that magic line? I don't know. But we for too long said you can belong until you believe. You can't, let me say that right, you can't belong until you believe. Jesus says you already belong. Let me help you learn to believe. And here, I may lose my job over this because I just realized this is being videotaped. <laughs> Could it be, let me ask it that, this is hypothetical for anybody watching this. <laughs> Could it be that we've lost the Great Commission to evangelism? Could it be that we've lost the Great Commission to evangelism? Trying to get people to jump over a magic line for Jesus, trying to get a bunch of converts so we can get our numbers up for our annual reports. I know a pastor in our denomination, I won't even tell you the state because it's so tragic. He doubled his attendance in a year. Went from around 200 to 400 in a year. What do you think the first thing the denomination did with him? What's that? No, they increased his salary, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, maybe. <laughs> what do we do with people like that? Either that or we parade them around to every conference, to every event. He spoke everywhere, talking about how you double a church because he got 200 to 400 new converts. His Sunday attendance went up. 
The next year, when he was picked up in a sting with a prostitute, his church attendance dropped 50% back to its original numbers. Never built disciples, got a bunch of converts. He was so busy evangelizing, he forgot to build disciples. Dare I say, and hear me on this, dare I say we were never called to evangelize unless your gift is to be an evangelist. That's the Holy Spirit work when we're, Holy Spirit's work when we're about making disciples. Evangelism is too small a target. Evangelism, getting people to make a decision for Jesus is too small a target. And that should take some guilt off of some of us, about 90% of us, because about 10% of us have the gift of evangelism. Some of you know Dr. Tuttle. He has the gift of evangelism. He sits down next to a person in an airport, and they're doomed. Or, <laughs> actually, I should say holy doomed. <laughs> they will be converted before they get a chance to get their uh, second drink. But that doesn't let the rest of us off the hook, you or me. 90% of us don't have the gift of evangelism, but we're not let off the hook because whether we're apostles or prophets or evangelists or shepherds or teachers, as Ephesians 4 talks about, we're still called to fulfill the priority number one that Jesus calls us to. That's to be disciples, using our gifts to fulfill our part in making disciples. And yes, it might mean that we'll have to adapt our annual reports. Just like you, most of you, I have to fill out an annual report every year. But instead of converts, what if we reported the number of people that we're discipling into a healthy relationship with Jesus? So then when does discipleship begin? Let me stretch you a little bit here. Do you believe in prevenient grace? At least at this seminar, I hope you answered yes. <laughs> Your grade depends upon it. Think about this, though. If we believe in prevenient grace, God's already discipling, discipling every person, bringing, God, bringing that person toward themselves. Think about discipleship like this. It's greater, it's... A, uh, a greater and more robust vision than what we normally have, I think. It's not just when we get people inside the walls after they've made a decision for Jesus. Think about this. If God's already at work in people's lives, discipleship, my part in the discipleship of a person's life, happens the moment I touch their life and extends for the whole time I have impact upon them. That's a different picture of evangelism than what most of us have lived with. None of us get off the hook but it means the discipleship starts, and it may only happen for five minutes when I'm in a cashier, a cash register line and I have a chance to be nice to a cashier. Or stopping by the subway, like you've all heard my stories until you're nauseated with it, I'm sure. But getting, taking time to get to know the manager, and when the manager just had a new baby in the, two weeks ago, and taking time to buy a gift card and drop it off. Simple stuff like that, that starts from the point when I touch a person and as long as I have influence on their life. One of our students recently was telling me, in fact, last spring, was telling me that he hired a person for his ministry setting. He works with troubled kids. And this guy came in and said, I want none of this Jesus stuff, but I just feel like I ought to be helping boys. He says, I'd like to help work with some boys in your ministry. So he did. Two years later, the guy comes up and said to him, this happened just this last spring. This is after a two-year process of walking with our student day, day, after, day in and day out in this, in this ministry work, working on the streets. He said, I think I'm ready to be baptized. Would you do that? 
someplace on that spiral, he was wandering toward Jesus, and our student just kept pointing him toward the water. And at one point, he wasn't even sure when it happened. He just said, I'm ready to be baptized. I'm into this Jesus stuff now. That's discipleship. Discipleship is intentionally pointing people toward the well, no matter how much time we have in their lives. It may be five minutes, it may be ten years. We're to be discipling when we eat out, serving the server rather than being served by the server. Obviously, the server will bring us our food, but when is the worst time for a server during the week? You probably know the answer. Sunday noon, right after church, every server cannot stand to have the Christians come in because they're such nasty people. They get treated so badly. They get treated like slaves. Lousy tempers. They complain about the food. What if we made it our job to serve that server, to care about them, get to know their name? Amazing things would begin to happen. What if we got to know the manager of the restaurant? One of our students, maybe I shared this the last time I spoke, I can't remember, but this last spring, those of you who are in my classes know you have to go on a mission every week. You're required, that's part of what our class is doing right now, every week out in a mission. One of our students took us this mission to take his young adult guys and have them meet for lunch at, I lost the name of the restaurant, doesn't matter. Not Beef O'Brady's, doesn't matter. Took him out to eat at this restaurant and he said, we're gonna serve tonight. And they said, what? He says, just wait and see. They got there, they ate their dinner and they met the server and he says, okay, it's time to clean up. So he says, everybody grab your stuff and let's go to the kitchen. So they cleaned their entire table, went to the kitchen, took it all in, and took their food, took, I mean, took their dirty dishes in. Then he says, okay, now start looking for empty tables that have dishes on them and need to be bussed. So they started bussing tables. Finally, the manager came around and said, what are you guys doing? He said, we just want to help serve you because we're committed to Jesus. The manager called the whole staff together and says, tell them what you've been doing and why. They now do that regularly. That's our student moving into ministry, taking his young adult guys. In fact, he said his young adult guys now do it on their own, whether, they're, whether he's with them or not. That's discipling, being a disciple who disciples, because now his young guys are doing it. What about when we take out our garbage? What about when we hold a sacramental party for our neighbors with no agenda, just to make friendships? Our son-in-law Blair is doing this with a poker party. And don't get hung up on the booze and don't get hung up on the poker and the gambling. They've set limits on all of that. But he's making inroads with people who would never come to your church or mine because they have a poker party every week. And it's usually at your house, isn't it? It's at her house. <laughs> so if you, if you need a place to go for the poker party, you know where to go. <laughs> And I won't, I won't give you the, how they handle the alcohol and the gambling, but don't get hung up on that. Get hung up on making friends. Get hung up on making friends. Discipleship is about learning how to hang out with people. It sounds a whole lot like Jesus, doesn't it? In fact, the book I want to uh, refer you to is Happy Hour by Hugh Halter, a brand new book called Etiquette and Advice on Holy Merriment. He picks up on the idea that, Hugh, that uh, Alan Hirsch has presented talking about the sacrament of parties. The sacrament of parties. He says we need to add as Protestants a new sacrament to our list. Rather than just baptism and communion, we have a sacrament of parties just to get to know our neighbors. Certainly at some point it's going to involve more formal study, but that's not, just the, be that's not the beginning point. 
We need to be prepared to share the good news of Jesus when people ask questions about what's different with us, particularly, again, with postmoderns. When they see something inviting in us, something different in our life that they can't accomplish or they can't live as or live like because we're so attractive because Jesus just gushes from us, they're going to ask questions. Certainly, be prepared for that. That's, this isn't negating any of that. <laughs> and the video ought to probably be shut off when I say this. Dare I gently disagree with Dr. Tennant's convocation theme last week about field preaching being the heart of the Wesleyan movement. Of course, I'm not the preaching professor here either, so you understand where I'm going. But I don't think field preaching really was the heart of the Wesleyan movement. Lots of people were doing field preaching. In fact, others got Wesley outgoing. I think the secret of the Wesleyan movement was the rediscovery of the Great Commission. The rediscovery of making disciples. Wesley did it through class meetings and all kinds of bands and other kinds of groups. The small communities where people could wrestle with the issues of faith and discover how to live the life of, life of a Jesus follower. One of the things I share in classes is Lev, Lev L-E-V, Vygotsky is a researcher, pagan, grew up or was a, a practicing psychologist working with children in the early 1900s. He discovered that people cannot learn social values if they don't experiment with those social values in a social setting. Hear that. Have to experiment with social values in a social setting in order to understand those social values. Is there any value that we talk about in the kingdom that's not a social value that either relates to God or how we relate to one another? We have to not just be preached to about it or taught about it in a classroom. We have to actually experience in a group of people where we can wrestle through and discover the reality of what it really means in our lives. That's discipleship. And yes, my neighbor messed up my annual report. Several years ago, I'd been hanging out with my neighbor across the garbage can. Um, that's a strange picture, isn't it? <laughs> hanging out at the garbage can with my neighbor. Um, I'd given him a Bible. He asked me one time if I, ever, if I taught Bible, and I didn't know how to answer him. I said, well, I teach leadership. Yes, I include the Bible. But I said, I'm not really a Bible teacher. So he didn't know what to do with that. I was trying to work around and not be too... I didn't really want to tell him I worked at a seminary because I didn't know where he was spiritually. Found out that he was feeling a whole lot of guilt because he pulled his wife out of church when they got married. She'd been heavily involved in the Pentecostal church and grown up in the church, and they'd not been back to church since they'd been married. We spent a lot of time having coffee together in local, a local coffee shop, and we talked a lot about Jesus and what Jesus wanted to do in his life. And one night he came to my door, I heard this pound on my door at about 9 o'clock at night, and he's standing there sobbing and laughing at the same time. And he says, Daryl, guess what? I gave my life to Jesus. I said, no, you couldn't do it. I won't count on my annual report. He says, I went to some, he says, I went to this little church storefront over here, and actually it's right here. I mean, we live in Oviedo. He'd driven all the way down here to a little storefront on Goldenrod and Colonial, the corner. It's no longer there. A church was meeting in a little storefront. He went in, the guy said, you got to get saved. And he said, okay. I said, but no, it doesn't count. I can't count it on my report. All I can count is that I was a discipler. I don't get credit for you because this other guy led you to Jesus. Because the report always asks, how many converts have I had? I didn't know what to do with him. 
What I did, do to, what I did discover, though, is a bigger truth about an, than annual reports. I was beginning to learn what it meant to live as a disciple. Helping make a disciple, and that's pretty cool. And I think that's the call that Jesus has for all of us. Whether we get the credit on our annual reports or not probably isn't the most significant factor. Whether we mold people and help them become further along in the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus for the sake of others, I think that's what it's about. Matthew reminds us, Meanwhile, the eleven disciples were on their way to Galilee, headed for the mountain Jesus had set for their reunion. The moment they saw him, they worshipped him. Some, though, held back, not sure about worship, about risking themselves totally. They're still struggling over whether they're going to really be disciples or not. They probably weren't even converted. Jesus undeterred, and went, Jesus undeterred went right ahead and gave his charge. God authorized and commanded me to commission you. Go out and train everyone you meet far and near in this way of life, marking them by baptism in the threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all that I've commanded you. I'll be with you as you do this, day after day after day, right up to the end of the age. Let's pray. God, thank you for the privilege you've given us to be disciple makers as we walk as disciples of you. It's also pretty scary because it's certainly different than a lot of what we've been taught, even in the church, of how important it is to make, get people to count as a number, to be somehow making a quick commitment and then go live like the devil. But empower us through your spirit to live as disciples who are, are empowered by your spirit and who go forth to touch everybody we encounter with the gift of Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity and for the privilege that you've given us, as well as the responsibility. And so we give ourselves to you as disciples to be disciple makers. In Jesus' name, amen.